Today we will continue in the book of James. We've now come to chapter 5, and I want to read the first six verses. These are very tough words to listen to, and we'll talk about them. First one of chapter 5 of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. We've mentioned on several occasions over the several weeks that we've been studying this book of James that for the most part, these words of this book are intended for the instruction of the brethren in the faith, believers, fellow believers in Christ Jesus, just like you and me. But these words today seem intended for and and appropriate to the behaviors of not only fellow believers, but especially for unbelievers. I say that because for the most part, these words seem to be speaking about men whose hearts are so calloused and so uncaring that they really must be unregenerate even reprobate, and they probably are. And if that be so, we need to ask the question, why does God do as he's doing here? Why does he pour out his pearls before the swine? Now from these and other scriptures like them, two reasons for that comes to my mind. First, the unbelieving soul must always be warned about their sin so that they will be without excuse on that great and terrible day when they have to stand before the judgment seat of God for the deeds that they've done in this life. But the second reason, and I believe the most important, is that some of those unbelievers who hear these words might soon or sometime later turn and surrender their hearts to Christ and become saved. And these words then of warning will have been written upon their hearts to guide them in their new salvation. Folks, we must remember that none of God's words will ever return to him void. He tells us that. They will always accomplish that for which he intends. And praise be to God for that. And so for whichever circumstance someone might be in that reads these words or hears these words, God has a plan for them. So then, we'll make the assumption that yes, these words today in this text are intended for you and me, who have given our hearts to Christ, but then also these words are intended for those who have not yet given their hearts to Christ. But we hope that they someday will. Now first, for those of us who have Christ as our Savior, how can we who have the Holy Spirit abiding within our souls descend into such pits of sin as are spoken about here in these words? How could that take place? May I remind us that Though we are fully saved, there's also a whole other realm of relationship with Christ that must follow on long after that first moment that we give our hearts to Christ. God calls that step in our progress with him our sanctification. And he tells us clearly that it is his will 
that we grow in our love for Him and our knowledge of Him and our understanding of Him. And as we do that, then we are sanctified. Those simple words are in 1 Thessalonians 4 where He just tells us simply, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He desires us to hear these words, to examine ourselves, and then to move on into that deeper relationship with Him. Now in this sanctification, we must always understand that just as God freely provided our salvation to us, that He also freely provides the next step of sanctification. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, He tells us that it is of God that we are in Christ Jesus, and He became for us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. God is doing it all. Time after time, we'll read words such as these and we falter in our understanding of them. The simple truth is none of our relationship with God is within your or my own personal human capacity to receive. It is all of God. Every step of our relationship with Him is of Him, through Him, and for Him. Why do I say that to us? There are many of our evangelical churches that do not believe what I just said to you. They have this belief and they teach it as doctrine that they have to conjure up some degree of faith within themselves. They have to work up this love for God. That's not the way it takes place. It is of Him and through Him and for Him that all of this relationship with Him between Him and ourselves take place. And praise be to God for that. But then again, with that being said mysteriously, while all of that is through Christ, we do also have a part that's required of us. We are the means by which His grace is ministered. And especially, His grace is ministered to others. He does that through us. But He also does that in us. And so we must join with Him and surrender to Him as His work of sanctification takes place daily within us. And may I also remind us of another truth that's given in an earlier message. It is that you and I do not come into this salvation experience already fully cleansed. We still have many of those old past habits and behaviors. That's why sanctification is so important. Again, yes, if we receive Christ as our Savior, we have come into our relationship fully forgiven, fully justified from all our past sins. And yes, we're going to be in heaven. But oh, oh, how our flesh still wants what it wants. It still has all of those memories and all those affinities towards all those old habits and behaviors and beliefs that used to be a part of our life, an important part of our life. The circumstance spoken about here in our text is an excellent example for us to consider. Here in these words, we have a businessman who has learned how to make money. Probably, for the most part, from good management practices. It does not say so, but most likely it was. But also, as we're told here, he also had learned how to make money through very corrupt management practices. Listen again to these words. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, 
which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, consider for a moment. If you were this man or this woman, when one day God decided to draw your heart to Jesus for salvation, and you do come to Him, and you receive Him as your Savior. Now, it would be wonderful if during that time that He was drawing you to Him, that He would also wash away all of those sinful habits and behaviors, that He would wash away the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and the pride of our life. And He does do some of that but not nearly all of it. Unfortunately, the flesh, our flesh, still remains alive within us, even in our salvation. And its lustful desires can return and plague our newly reborn soul, as the Apostle Paul described for us there in Romans chapter 7, was taking place with him on a daily basis. And so then, you wake up the next day after you have given your heart to Christ, and you find that you're in a great dilemma. You are now in a great dilemma. You have built a large and thriving business off not only the broken backs of your competitors, but also off the blood and sweat of your employees. And all your corrupt business practices, they're still in place. They are still in place. And if you back off from those corrupt practices, even for a moment, then your entire enterprise might collapse. And yes, because the blessed Holy Spirit is now living within you, you immediately begin to feel guilt. And then day after day, as you live and work within your old sinful business habits and practices, your soul becomes more and more and more guilt-ridden. What are we to do? What are you to do? The dilemma is real. It's really real because the truth is, your flesh still really does love all of that wealth and especially that social position in your community. You love your spacious home and your well-stocked pantry, and you love your cars and your trucks, and you especially love the fact that you are admired by all those other wealth seekers like yourself. And in addition to that, the local arts council has booked you to be their keynote speaker at their annual fund drive, at which time you will give a, a generous check to them, a gift that you've been assured by your tax accountant is a tax-deductible gift. It's all part of this wealthy personality that God wants to change within us. All these things are so very important to you and to your wife, to your children, this wealth, this social position, all of that. So then the question, what are you to do with this newfound salvation? And also, what are you to do with that gnawing guilt that keeps coming up in your conscience each time that you make that next self-centered and corrupt business decision. Fortunately for us, God does not cut us any slack. He doesn't soften his words. He comes at us to get us to change. And so he says to us now, now that you're rich, all of that gold is going to cause you problems. You've laid up treasures in your last days and all of your laborers, all of your workers, All of those customers that you cheated, they're all calling for your judgment. What are you going to do? As I look around this congregation, I am thankful that none of us really fits into this category of the businessman or businesswoman that these words describe. 
And also, thankfully, we don't suffer with having some of the memories and the habits and the affinities that are mentioned. But listen, folks, within these words, it's something that God does often in these scriptures. Here he presents this very extreme circumstance that none of us actually fit. But he gives us this, this extreme circumstance so that we can clearly see the concept for exactly what it is, so that we can know what he's telling us about. He also wants us to know that from the viewpoint of his righteous and holy omniscience, he's able to see in their hearts. And though we may not fit into these circumstances, he's able to detect attitudes and behaviors within us that we ourselves are not able to see clearly. So then, before we pat ourselves on the back and say, thank you, Lord, I'm not like this corrupt man that's mentioned here in these scriptures, we're reminded of the Pharisee in the synagogue who was standing there saying, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. The infallible truth that God wants you and me to always remember about ourselves is that sin is an ever-present predator that seeks any and every opportunity to take control over our behaviors. And you and I must be ever vigilant against sin, no matter how big or how small it may be, especially no matter how big or small it may seem to us to be. If we're not vigilant, it will surely grab a hold of us and our behaviors. Simply put, sin of all types and kinds and all measures is still sin. And God said emphatically, that he will never allow any sin, no matter how small or how large, to go unpunished. He is holy. And all of our behaviors will be judged according to his unchanging standards of holiness. And also to be sure, he will not allow any form of sin to enter into his presence in heaven. Every sin must be paid for in full. And remember the words that we've said so often from this pulpit, there is only one acceptable payment for sin, and that payment is the precious atoning blood of Christ. And yes, on our side of the blessed equation, we have a responsibility to fulfill. We must respond to the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings into our hearts about whatever those business practices are that are probably wrong. We have to respond to it. And our only response is to repent, to truly repent of our sins. And that's true no matter what what form that sin might take, what measure, what degree. Listen again. Again, this is a, an extreme example, but he wants us to see where we might fit into any of these circumstances. He says, now, come down, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and they will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, while none of this fits any of us here, None of us had this level of wealth or this level of authority over other people. But we need to accept the reality that this thing that we call wealth 
is really relative to our position in life. When it comes to the manner in which we deal with our behaviors and the sin that so often rears its head, it really doesn't seem to matter the amount of the wealth that we have. I never had much money. My wife and I never had much money. But let me assure you, I fit into some of these circumstances. I don't like to see myself in them, but I do fit in. Wealth is a relative condition of life. When it comes to the manner in which we deal with our behaviors and the sin that so often rears its head, it really doesn't seem to matter the amount of the wealth that we have. Because no matter how much we have, be it a little or a lot, it never seems to be quite enough. We do seem always to want more. When our want for wealth is left unchecked, again, no matter how little or how lot we have, when our want for wealth is left unchecked, it surely almost always becomes that which scriptures call a lust for wealth. And that lust can be very powerful in its emotions, often taking control over our behaviors. And in considering this matter of wealth and our want of it, and how all of us are different, some of us may truly have very little regard for wealth. So we can probably say with some truth that we don't really care that much about being wealthy. But I need to warn myself, and so I want to warn you, God is telling us clearly that here and in other passages of Scripture, that this desire for money and for the things that money represents is subtly captivating, as I mentioned a moment ago. There's one Bible statistic that I read uh, some time ago. It was that over 50% of Jesus' parables and analogies have to do in some manner or another with money and the effects that money has on you and me. One of the familiar teachings that Jesus gave regarding money is in Matthew chapter 6. I like these words because they deal with this matter of money on more of your and my level of wealth. You recall there Jesus refers to money as mammon. Now we've heard these words on a lot of occasions, but I want you to bear with me as I read these. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. 
for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As we consider these words, and also those words that we read at the, at the beginning from James 4, may I ask us to allow these words to be a mirror, a mirror through which we can begin to truly see the nature of our own soul, the desires and the hopes and the dreams that you and I can have for money and for the things that money can buy, truly do have a mysterious power within them, a power that can cause us to do things that we should not do. So then, no, we might not ever find ourselves in the same position as these rich people that are mentioned in this passage, misusing and hurting other people for our own gain. But we must understand that at least some version of this circumstance is very possible for each of us. We might not be the ones, and listen to this, I found myself in this position. We might not be the one who is actually gaining from corrupt management within the business where we work. It might be our boss. But if we carry out his or her orders and mistreat other employees or cheat the customers through corrupt business practices, we will probably share in our boss's guilt and future accountability before God. And we might probably need to consider making some hard decisions about our employment. Whatever our circumstance may be, may I strongly encourage you and me to always, always allow this Word of God to be our guide as we carry out our duties in our workplace. Listen to these words as I close. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall you eat, what shall you drink, or what shall you wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. And your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Let's pray.